we're going to hear. Thank you, O God, our Father, for reminding us this morning of the wider church of which we are a part, to have our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom you crave, but we also think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia. We think of the long contact that Ian had, our brother Ian McQuarrie had with your people there, especially in Yekaterinburg and the areas round about that, the work of the Salvation Centers, and the young men particularly who had found faith, who could sing that their chains had been broken and that they had been set free. And yet we think of some of these young men, perhaps who are now being conscripted into the army, either they have been or by what we read in the press, and here in the media may well be in the coming weeks and months, how challenging it would be to be a Christian and be in armed forces anywhere, and particularly in Russia. And so we do pray for your church in that band as well. We thank you for what we heard of the church in Hungary, the long-established Reformed church there, the Protestant church within Hungary. For that music group, who were preparing for the concert, who didn't know very much about them. We simply asked, one of the men told us they were preparing for a concert that night. Unfortunately, we'd, we'd got tickets to go to the ballet, so we couldn't manage, but we thank you for them and for your church in that land and for the work of Scripture Union in that land and for the new national director who's starting their work just this coming week. And we also thank you for our wider missionary partners, particularly if we think of Faber and Elaine and the family. We just had a conversation with them yesterday, and they've now moved to Rome, to the Bible College in Rome, 
Fabry is to do some teaching and also he and Elaine are to act as house parents to the students who are there, especially the younger students who live within the college, a bit like Tilsley College in Motherwell. And so we do pray today as they've had a weekend, a staff conference, and then today as students start coming back after the holidays to the college, and especially, as I say, the younger ones who will be living there. We just pray for the establishment of good relationships between the, youth, the students and the youth staff members, particularly Fabry and Elaine, and Rebecca and Matteo. We do pray for them as a family, especially as the kids go to school tomorrow, to a youth school and a youth setting, very different from where they were before in a, a relatively relatively small village in the outskirts of Verona. And so we do ask your, just for your protection, your care for the children and for Fabri and Elaine, especially Elaine as she starts language training and really tries to get a handle on Italian and to be able to speak more fluently in that language. We thank you for this door of opportunity that's been opened. And we do pray for your spirit to water the the seeds of your word amongst all those who are gathered within that college. Build your church in that land, we pray, weakened and divided as it is. Lord, we pray for ourselves, not just our own personal needs, but our fellowship here and for the rest of your church within our own community. Weakened in many ways by COVID and all the things falling on from that, and yet we thank you for the encouragements we received as a congregation over Christmas. We thank you for every visitor who came through the doors of this house, who, yes, saw something and savored something of the spirit of this past season, but also heard something of Jesus and of the real reason for that season. Lord, May your word not return void, but may it accomplish the purpose that you have ordained for it. And we think of those sitting beside us this morning, or those who usually do but aren't with us today, or some who are struggling with ill health, for those who are facing very real personal challenges in their life, to do with work, with family, and with wider responsibilities. Those who feel the new year deeply, perhaps the loneliness of it. And we remember the folks round about us, some of whom we know well, some perhaps we don't even know their names. And so Lord, help us at the end of the service to make the effort to get to know who they are. And we gather each other and we bring them to you. We thank you, O oh God, our Father, that in Jesus we have a God who knows us in our weakness, meets with us in our fears, forgives us in our sins, renews us by the Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, hear us as we pray. Amen. Who would have thought that we'd have been singing by video? Well, it just shows what can happen over the years, how we can change how we worship and remind ourselves of that wider congregation and company of God's people of which we are a part. And we certainly have done that this morning. This past week, 
in our devotions, in the little devotional times during when the church is open. The theme for the past week was a new beginning. And we were listening to some Christmas music. We won't be doing that next week, so I hasten to comfort those who come along. That's, that's when those CDs have been filed away. But we were listening to some Christmas music, um, particularly to the carol, God Rest Ye Merry Gentle Folk. And the refrain of that, of tidings of comfort and joy, glad tidings of comfort and joy. But as we were thinking about that, we were thinking that that's not the news, if you were listening to the radio or in some other way this morning, tapping into the news, it certainly isn't tidings of comfort and joy that you hear. We're living in a country which is afflicted with strikes, with various forms of industrial unhappiness, with the cost of living crisis, with inflation, with the cost of fuel, etc., with a very real sense of discontentment and disharmony. We're living as a part of Europe, where, as I said at the beginning, there's war on the Eastern Front. Who'd have thought we'd have been using that phrase once again? But there is war, war which is more like the First World War, trench warfare, huge use of heavy artillery, and if you've been using, watching television, you just see how these cities and towns are being destroyed. The Russians are doing the same thing as they did in Syria and Aleppo, and look what happened there in Syria. We should have been far quicker to put a stop to that then, and perhaps taught them a lesson then. That's not the way to get their goals, but that is what they thought worked in Syria, and so they're doing the same thing in Ukraine. And so we're living in a Europe, a Europe of increasing secularism, a Europe of increasing nationalism, a Europe where there is great tensions within those countries. And alongside all of that, and you're saying, oh, you're a right cheery soul this morning, alongside all of that, there are other issues. The Scottish government approved just at Christmas time that it would be possible for young people from age 16 to self-identify, that is to change who, how they're registered, whether they're a, a boy that's now become a girl or a girl becoming a boy. And doing that, as I say, self-identifying, doing that without all the various investigations, tests, and psychological input that used to take place when people were older to do that. And that's a real concern. We had quite a wee discussion informally after the meeting of the, the staff of Park Kids on Wednesday evening just about that. This coming year, there is going to be pressure to pass legislation concerning assisted dying. And I mentioned, I think, last week or at one of the gatherings, no, during the week, and I say again, if you want maybe to see something that opens up that story, then watch the BBC drama on iPlayer called Mayflies. Where's Mayflies? And with Martin Compton, you know, of that fame, and some of you may have already seen it, some of you may not, I commend it to you. It's got terrible language. I'm not commending to you because of that, but it's an insight into that whole debate and that issue. And then, if that's not bad enough, and behind all of that, there is a sea change, a deep sea change, a tidal change in how people think about themselves, about our society, 
and about some of the issues of the age. For many of us, perhaps looking around for the majority of us, brought up in the tail end of Christendom within our country, we perhaps find this hard to understand. But this whole, we've never heard the phrase woke, uh, wokeism, this whole thing, an expression of that actually is found in Harry and Meghan. Troubled souls, they definitely are. But then things that they say, the way they present themselves, this cry that's there that I've not been listened to, and sometimes perhaps in secular life we hear people saying that, I'm not being listened to, because of course they understand that their expression of their views actually identifies who they are. And if that expression is challenged, then not only are you challenging an opinion, you're actually saying, as they understand it, that you have no right to exist. And so therefore they become very, very heated. And well, you can see that. I'm not going to be watching the interviews. The poor man, if he wants reconciliation, all the psychologists are telling him that's not the way to do it. But nonetheless, if you were to watch it, you can see that angst. So they're an example, an extreme example of all of this. I'm going to read something to you. Now, some of us might not follow this and I fully understand, but for some of us, we might, and I think it's important, and indeed I can give you the details of this quote. Um, a lot of the issue, and you see that in the trans debate, you see that in so many other things, is the use of language, okay? So I'm going to read this little article to you. Behind the impenetrable jargon of postmodernism, that's what we are living in a postmodern society, are two crucial ideas. Firstly, that power is wielded not by individuals, but by groups. I still remember, Evan, a very wise thing you shared with me some time ago. One of the signs of a decline in Christian influence in society in the West is a rise of tribalism. So people identify with a tribe, either racially or in terms of their sexual orientation or, or whatever. And so we live in a society, this understanding is, that power is wielded not by individuals, but by groups. These groups are divided by race, sexuality, and gender. And the most, inverted commas, privileged among them are the oppressors. Secondly, power is perpetuated through the use of language. So important is language that the writer of this article argues that the whole culture war should be seen as, again inverted commas, word games writ large. For example, in the terminology of this U movement, you might say, people who are exposed to unfashionable opinions are, inverted commas, unsafe. And those who express such opinions are using, inverted commas, violence. This then justifies censorship and actual violence against people who disagree with you, who are termed as fascists. He goes on then to talk, and if you want actually an illustration of this, this is quite a lot to take in on a Sunday morning, but um, some of you know are thinking of these things. And then George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, particularly, or 1984, is all about that. Quite prophetic in many ways. This Orwellian corruption of language would be bad enough if it were confined to academia. 
but is spilled over into the real world. Between 2014 and 2019, the police investigated 120,000 inverted commas non-crime hate incidents. That is, if you happen to say something that somebody disagrees with, they can say, oh, you've, you've committed a crime against me and report you to the police. The justice system tacitly assumes the guilt of the accused by describing complainants as victims. And again, we see that, don't you? You hear that? Automatically, you're guilty and they're a victim. And then it talks about when a government uses terms like legal but harmful to describe online speech, it's using the language of its enemies. And what the writer of this particular article is most concerned about is the way that this has influenced education. And I'm looking down here at the teachers amongst us and how that has particularly been seeping into the educational world. It started with training in universities and now teachers, and I know many teachers amongst us find it increasingly difficult. Um, and just the whole spirit of the, of the age there. And how I appreciate for some of us this is beyond our our knowledge and perhaps even our interest, but for others of us, it's not. So how, as a Christian, committed to the fact that there is truth, and of course, one of the challenges of the contemporary society is that there is no such thing as truth. It's simply based on how you feel, what you've experienced, and what may suit you at the present time, how, as Christians, committed to an understanding that there is such a thing as right and wrong, true and false, that there are absolutes, how, as Christians, should we live? Well, take heart. You'll be glad at half past 11 I'm finally saying to you, take heart. This is only an introduction, by the way, so don't worry, I'm not good. Because the Bible, the whole Bible, actually, is all about the people of God living in a very similar setting and world. And that's important for us to remember. Again, because most of us, older people, I include myself in that category now, were brought up in this post-Christian era where, for instance, people would turn up at their hordes on Christmas Eve and, there was a, and schools would have prayers and the minister would come in as a chaplain and do his bit, probably deadly boring, but nonetheless would come and do his bit. All that kind of thing. Brought up into that environment, it's hard for us to actually not remember that the Bible wasn't written into such a society, actually was written into the world as it increasingly is, especially the Western world, especially in Europe. And that should encourage us that far from this book being irrelevant, apart from the good news of Jesus Christ as not being effective and have a word to say to our contemporary age, actually it has even more to say than perhaps the world in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. It's the story of the book of Acts. It's the story of the Roman Empire. 
It's the story of the decline of the Roman Empire. The book of Hebrews is set towards the latter part of the first century when already the corrosive influence of some of the things that are, inverted commas, you today were already going about in terms of sexual morality, in terms of the use of language, in terms of the corrosion of people's confidence in the state and in the instruments and functions of the state. All of that was being played out early as it was within the Roman Empire of the 80s, 60s, and 70s. Let's be honest, no wonder when Nero, for instance, decides because of his own angst and because of his own problems to get his own back and somehow express his frustration, not by going on media or writing a book, but by setting fire to the city where he lived, Rome, in order to distract himself and others from his own problems. And so the Bible, particularly the New Testament, but also the Old Testament and Israel's calling to be a, a nation set before God as a light to the nations, the nations round about that worship false deities, false gods. They were called to be a light worshiping the true God. But also now in the New Testament, there is a calling and a relevance for God's people today. And so... This book of Hebrews is a word for the times. And it's written, of course, by the very name, it's written to Hebrews. It's written to Messianic believers. It's written to Jewish Christians. And that, again, has a relevance. Not because we are Jewish, but it's written to people who are living out the life of faith in the Messiah and people who have a religious tradition. And, again, for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us sitting here, we have that religious tradition. We find it hard. And I think it's true to say, that's why many of us, of course, just retreat into a pietistic fortress. Because we find it hard to understand the world of our children and grandchildren. And so we find it easier just to switch off and not to think about it. But we can't do that. In the same way, as the people that the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to were tempted to retreat into a little enclave, or else to embrace the spirit of the age and to go down the road of, well, they're doing it, so why should I? And we see that being played out in the church today. The calling is to be faithful. Those verses, I'm not preaching on those verses, but those verses that Helen read earlier, let me read them again to you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching here is the writer encouraging the Christians not to lose heart not to feel embattled not to give up the faith not to draw into some narrow iconoclastic attitude towards life but to embrace the gospel embrace Jesus and yes embrace life with full assurance 
holding unswervingly to the faith we profess. And why can we do that? Because God is faithful and has provided in Jesus Christ a great high priest so that we can draw near to God with a sincere heart. And so this book has been, is written to Christians with a religious background, living out the life of faith in an increasingly troubled and confusing world. It's written to the church, and it draws much from the Old Testament, as we also see, Old Testament references, but to a church that's set in a real world. We don't know who has written it. At the beginning of the letter, there isn't, unlike Paul's letters, a, a greeting from the apostle. So we don't know who has written it. There are references and particularly towards the end of the letter, there are references to Timothy, not as the writer, but as someone who obviously is a peer. So at the very end of Hebrews 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. After 13 chapters, you might think it wasn't that brief, but nonetheless he obviously thought it was. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released if he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. And so it's sent by what we read there from someone in Italy, someone who probably is a contemporary of Timothy, who was the next generation of church leaders. And so this is a letter written by the next generation of church leaders, not by Paul or Peter, but by perhaps by Apollos, or perhaps by Barnabas, or someone else. In that sense, it doesn't really matter. But it reminds us that their church has always got to have a next generation. And that's why, and I give an apology to the, the older members here. You'll notice, or hopefully you have noticed, um, particularly over the last year or two, that I am pitching things in a way which I do appreciate some of us think, what's he going on about? That's part of the reason why we have the wee devotionals during the week. Because at the end of the day, no disrespect, brothers and sisters, you and I, we are going out the world, but there's a whole group of people here and online who are coming into the world and who have to live out the life of faith in the 2030s and 40s when we'll be maybe even pushing up the daisies. And a church always has to remember that. I've been in too many, dare I say, UF churches, and there were lovely wee fellowships of older people, but really that's what it was. It was just a wee fellowship group, and there was no interest, no real concern, no real ability to reach the next generation. Well, here's this is a reminder. The church didn't end with Paul or Peter. There was a Timothy, and there were others who were going to come. If they hadn't been, we wouldn't be sitting here today. And in our prayers, in our ministry, in what we do, in how we think, it's vital that we think of the next generation. And someday, God willing, you'll have a man standing in this pulpit who will be in his late 30s or early 40s, and will lead you on to that next generation. Because it's that generation who will be living out the life of faith in the very kind of society that I've just been speaking about. A word from the next generation of church leaders. But it's a word, and we will spend time on this, and next week we'll start looking in detail. It's a word supremely 
about Jesus and how wonderful he is. You see, my friends, if we're living in a world and society where ultimately what determines who you are and what you think and what you do and all the rest of it is about how you feel things and how you understand things and how you see things, then we're going to have to engage with that society, yes, with absolute truth, but truth that's dressed in flesh. By the way, is that not just what we've been celebrating at Christmas? In the beginning, and John in his gospel quite deliberately draws from Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning there was God, there was the Word. But what does the Word do? The Word comes amongst us, takes frail flesh, is full of grace and truth. And in him was the light of life. You see, is incarnated. The realities of the eternal world takes flesh. And then, does Paul not go on about the fact, what does he say? You are the body of Christ. And so... When people see us individually, but also see us in community, and that's an important thing, and this is our tribe, <laughs> end of the day. Our community. When people see us, and that's why fellowship is important, that's why engaging with each other is important. When they see us in community, above everything else, whether they recognize or not, they're meant to see Jesus. He still walked down the streets of Uddingston, or does walk down the streets of Uddingston. In that factory, in that school, amongst our neighbours, with our friends. But that will only be the case when we think Jesus is wonderful, is amazing is the best thing or best one on offer. When Jesus said he had come to bring life and life in all its fullness, what he meant was not that we were going to have it cozy and comfortable, not that we were going to have, you know, all the things of this life and this world that we would desire, not that we're never going to have any trouble at our door or anything else. He didn't say that at all. How could he? He said those things as he was journeying to Jerusalem and to all the other things that he faced. How could he when he said that if we were going to be a friend of Jesus, we would have to take up the cross and follow him? What is the way he went? The way of suffering, the way of self-denial, the way of trust. He didn't mean it would be cozy and comfortable. What he meant was that in Christ, we actually will discover what life is all about. In Christ, we'll get to know the God who has created not only this little planet, but the vastness of the universe. We'll begin to understand that which only will be fully realized when we see him face to face. That's why so many of our hymns speak of that ultimate destination and that ultimate day. But nonetheless, in the here and now, we of all people will have things to rejoice in, knowledge to share, a life that's blessed because even in the place of suffering, as we've been hearing this morning, we'll know God. And not the forsaken barrenness 
of the broad road that leads to hell. And so in the whole of this letter, time and again, we shall see, and next week I'll put on the order of service, the breakdown of this, that Christ is far superior to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses and Joshua, to Aaron, to the old covenant, and that the life of faith in him is a superior way to live for all times and for all people. And all of that is a good deal. This is January. It used to be traditionally the month of the sales, wasn't it? And we would go and have a look and see what we could get knocked down by so much. I do believe that you could get a turkey, a Christmas turkey from Marks and Spencers that had been marked up at 15, 60 pounds for a fiver. They've all gone, I'm afraid. There is a deal offered in Jesus Christ that is beyond price. That is the peril of great price. It lasts not just for a month, but for all eternity. You know that song we were singing? Stand in the gospel for all eternity. And who is it? What is it? It's not the church. It's not me. Not you. It's Jesus. And he is the one who's superior. And every knee will at the last bow. And every tongue at the last will recognize who he is. And my friends, it says we're caught up with that and share that. And that will transform how we face life. You have to, some of us have to get our act together, you know. There's a phrase, probably, probably everything I said at the morning, probably shouldn't be allowed nowadays, but don't edit it off the camera. We need to man up. And that includes the ladies. We really do. We are not to be We have to be alive because God is on his throne. His purpose is being fulfilled. Even in all the things we see in our world, in our society, God is working his purposes out as year succeeds to year. He will have his people. He has paid the price and to him be all the praise and the glory. And my friends, our life is to be lived in the light of that truth and not what's going on in our society, not the hassles we face in our homes, not the problems with our neighbors, or what the price of gas will be next month. It's in the glory of God revealed amongst us by the Spirit and in the person of Jesus. And next Sunday, we shall, in Hebrews chapter 1, reflect on that. God, our Father, we remember those words. It's not the parts in the Bible that we don't understand that we find difficult. It's the parts in the Bible that we do understand. And while I'm sure all of us, minister included, will not be able to grasp all the depths and the interests of the argument in this book of Hebrews, Lord, we do understand, I trust anyway, even by that introduction, that we are being called and invited to meet with your Son, our Lord Jesus. And how we need to get to know him better. And so as we start this new year, O oh Lord, we offer ourselves afresh to you. Take our lives and let them be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take our minds 
and our hearts, our hands, and our voices. And may they, in so many different ways, bring you praise and glory. And through the Holy Spirit, continue to teach us and equip us in this most holy faith. So having done all, we might stand. And so we offer ourselves, as we offer our offerings, we don't bring them forward in the way we used to, but as we bring our financial gifts to you, whether that's done through the bank or in the plate at the door, as we bring our financial gifts to you, they're simply a token of our love for you and a sign of our desire to serve you. Take our gifts, take us, Lord, and use them for your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.